Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast that aims to get behind the biggest stories from the world's most fascinating region. My name is Andrew People. And I'm Vincent Nee. So we're returning today to the story that's dominating not just Asia, of course, but the whole world right now. And that's, of course, the continued spread of the COVID-19 coronavirus. What seems to have begun in a wet market in Wuhan, China, we think, has now been declared a global pandemic, causing financial markets to crash as governments resort to unheard of peacetime measures to contain the virus. In Asia itself, some of the worst seems hopefully to have passed. The number of new cases in countries like China has started to tail off, it seems. But what we wanted to do in this episode is to assess the way different countries in Asia have reacted to the virus, why some seem to have had less cases than others, and what we can possibly learn from that. I should apologize in advance. We're all working from home today, so we don't have the normal studio quality sound, but bear with us. We're hoping to have a fascinating discussion Joining us today, we have two excellent guests, at least. We have Dr. Parag Khanna. Parag is the founder and managing director of strategic advisory firm FutureMap and the author of, among other books, The Future is Asian. He's done a lot of work on the sort of interconnectedness of Asian and global economies. We're also joined by Ian Johnson, a longtime China correspondent with The New York Times, really one of the leading foreign correspondents in China for, for many years now. His most recent book, The Souls of China, charts the revival of religious practice in China in recent years, but he's also been been writing a lot about the coronavirus for the times. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us today. Parag, can I ask you first, let's just talk about that response across Asia. Obviously, it's a big region, lots of different political models, ways of running countries. But where we've seen successful responses to the virus uh, so far, what have been the key features that have stood out to you of the government's approaches to the virus? It's a really good question, a good place to start. And thank you for uh, convening this uh, remote, multi-directional conversation <laughs> on this topic. Maybe it's emblematic of globalization itself. You know, there's good globalization and bad globalization. We often forget and things like the, the rapid butterfly effect uh, that has brought this virus around the world is obviously an example of the latter. You know, before we typologize about regimes and, you know, correlate those to quality of response, you know, maybe just a brief comment about how there are parts of Asia, obviously, uh, China in particular, um, you know, South Korea, that have taken this incredibly strong response. Other parts of Asia, we can't even necessarily even quantify, you know, the sort of human toll or infection rate at this point, because they're so big, chaotic, disorganized, have done nothing in terms of capping or restricting uh, Chinese populations coming in. So for example, in Thailand, the restrictions are limited. There's such a back and forth flow. So we have no idea at the moment, or an accurate view of the infection rate. In India, of course, the infection rate must surely be higher than what is being let on. But as with all things in India, data is hard to come by. We've seen Prime Minister Modi push very hard in the public domain for kind of self-quarantining. That's not the kind of thing that happens in India uh, voluntarily and, and uh, often not involuntarily. So at this point, in some ways, it's almost more useful just to focus on the key countries like China and South Korea and Japan and, and to some extent Singapore. I'm sitting in Singapore and it is remarkable when you look at the mortality uh, rates and the tally that gets published, uh, you know, that's updated every minute. You know, this was the country that had the highest infection rate outside of China in the early weeks. And mm. that when you look at the mortality figures, Singapore doesn't show up. It's zero. And this is an aging country. This country has the yeah. you know, second oldest demographics or basically neck and neck with Japan. 
the oldest population in the world, something in the order of 100, 200 people infected, not a single human being has died in this country. And I think that's obviously quite, quite remarkable. And I've been here more or less throughout with just short trips uh, in and out. And I'll tell you what, what people say, because what goes in hand in hand with having an elderly society is that people remember SARS. And everyone says we learn from best practices and lessons and the people, of course, remember it. They knew that people died. And so they immediately kind of snapped into, not into sort of obedient posture, right? They simply knew what protocols and protections and measures to take and they did it. In another aspect of response, obviously with South Korea, things are moving very fast on the testing. So, you know, if we go one by one, we can see strengths and weaknesses in, in the different approaches. Ian, in China and Hong Kong, that memory of SARS seems to have been quite a key factor as well. Do you think that's that's fair comment from your experience? You were in China until relatively recently. Absolutely. Um, I think this was something right at the beginning before the lockdown when there, when the first reports came out in early to mid-January about this, people were immediately saying this could be another SARS. There were rumors which are which turned out to be accurate uh, that this would be worse than SARS and we had to take it seriously. These are often some of the people I'm in touch with are not politically active you know, university professors and stuff like that, but working class people and religious organizations. I'm in chat rooms or chat groups on WeChat with 100, 150 different people. And it was almost uniform, like we better take this seriously. We have to be careful about old people, especially. And it was almost people welcome the quarantine. Obviously, it it's gone on very long and people are exasperated and sometimes frustrated by it. Mm. But I would say overall, there's something, I don't know, 80% buy-in or something like that. Um, yeah. This was necessary. I mean, there was some criticism early on, wasn't there, that uh, China was slow, and this has been well documented now, was quite slow to uh, disclose the existence and the, the spread of the disease. But that seemed to change sort of in, in January, and there was quite a big response from there. What, what was it that really changed things, do you think, in China? What got the government to sort of uh, switch tack and, and be more open and disclose more? Well, they did have early warning systems in place that were a result of SARS. And initially, it's not clear exactly. There's a bit of a blame game, interesting blame game going on in China where the government is implying that it was all local officials in Wuhan. Yeah. Wuhan officials are saying, no, we reported up to the province, but we couldn't do anything without provincial approval. It's trying to kick. You never want to blame the central government, but you could blame maybe the provincial government. And so it, it'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out, say, in six months or something. I would imagine by the autumn There'll be a further reshuffling of, of people in the regional government, and we'll have an idea of who has sort of been blamed, although the government will never really come out. They'll, they always sort of, their method in dealing with crises like this is to find a few bad apples who can be sort of exemplary figures uh, who didn't do their job correctly, and they'll be sort of scapegoated. But yeah. I, I don't, think, don't think we know exactly the sequence, but it's pretty clear that by the second week of January, it had been publicly announced. And very quickly, the government made statistics available on social media. The most popular, almost monopolistic social media in China is WeChat. And on WeChat, you could get live updates on yeah. the number of cases by nationally, by region, mortality rate, um, rate of growth, rate of people who have been healed and, and released from hospital. It's kind of remarkable, I think. That, you know, the statistics were criticized because they changed the parameters a couple of times. Yes. But I, th I think overall they were 
accurate. It's like with a lot of things in China, with the statistics, you can nitpick at the numbers, but overall, they reflect reality. I think they, they're a good reflection, just like with GDP or other things, and they <laughs> exaggerate or underestimate. But overall, if you look at the GDP growth, say over time, it but roughly tracks what we experience on the ground. And yeah. I think this is the same here, especially in an epidemic where there's so much going on. It is a crisis. There was no China out there ahead of time with cases. Right. You know, this is they were facing something at the time when they covered it up. You have to, to be fair. I'm not trying to be an apologist for the government, but there had been no deaths. Mm. It wasn't. This was a hypothetical situation where you can imagine the politicians sort of saying, "Oh, you know, there are these experts out there who are warning about this thing." But Chinese New Year is coming up. The political season's about to start. I don't want to be the mayor of a city that is announcing an epidemic. Right. Um, and so this is, of course, they covered it up. But overall, once they got on the horse, they then rode it pretty hard. And I think it's been a pretty open and pretty transparent. Sure. Yeah, you you were just in China. Um, how were people talking about this? Obviously, in the West, what we hear most is the death of this doctor Li Wenliang, who was you know initially trying to warn his friends and the family members about this uh, danger of this virus, and then he was reprimanded, and then he died of this virus. So that sort of got Western observers uh, chat a lot about what's happening in China. But what about ordinary Chinese people you have had encountered when you were in China? Well, I sort of divide people into two groups, and those are those with VPNs and those without. And I don't know the exact numbers of VPN used in China, but it's very low. It's just v- a few. VP- pre- VPN is a virtual uh, private network. Yes. Yeah, so this is software that allows you to jump over the Great Firewall of China and access the uncensored internet and get all the information on this. So on on, on whatever. Um, all the sites that are blocked, in other words. So people in China who have VPNs number perhaps just a couple of percent of the internet users in China. Those tend to be politically savvy, urban elites, um, academics, social activists, people who are in NGOs. Uh, You're still talking about in raw numbers, a significant number of people, several million people. But as an overall percentage of the population, it's quite low. Those people are all very aware of Dr. Li Wenliang, who tried to warn about the COVID-19 virus early on and was shut up and then he's become a symbol. People who don't have VPNs are still aware of him to some degree. He's been almost co-opted by the government as a martyr, as a doctor on the front lines who died trying to, and there have been many doctors on the front lines who have died in service trying to fight the virus. And, and, and clearly, this is why people like that are, are why there will have to be repercussions. They won't be able to completely sweep it under the table. They've already shifted out the leadership in Wuhan, and you can expect further repercussions later in the year, I would guess. So there will have to be some sort of more response because of people like that. But I think overall, people will accept the fact that the government might have made a mistake, but it did react appropriately. Mm. And then especially as events have unfolded around the world, that makes that line easier to sell to people when they see the response in Italy, for example, and perhaps the the response that's unfolding now in the UK. um, It makes it easier for the government to push its line that they were tough, but it was tough love. Right. Uh, Parag, there was a lot of um, discussion in Europe here about, you know, intergovernmental response coordination. Um, There were scholars signing open letters asking for this. Has this happened in Asia at all? 
You know, I think it's an interesting analogy. One would expect, though, that given Europe was in a position to react collectively, that they also could have taken collective action, knowing, of course, that within the Schengen area, it's already borderless. So it's the kind of thing where it wouldn't, shouldn't necessarily require scholars, dissidents or others to uh, attempt to urge collective action when Europe knows that that's what's needed. Whereas in Asia, where obviously there's much more sovereignty at play, you would have uh, hoped for a stronger kind of coordinated uh, response. But again, for all the reasons that Ian mentioned, they too were really reacting to what had already begun to come out of China prior to them knowing it. So what we've seen thus far is kind of um, sharing of resources, let's say, you know, Japan offering to lend support to China, and that's been viewed as something of a gesture and olive branch. Then China, now that it appears to be, you know, recovering to some degree, um, offering to lend support to other countries. So it's more of what you would expect in Asia, which is talk of regional, you know, sort of homily, but really more bilateralism. And that's fine if South Korea can share testing kits and so forth with neighbors. Fantastic, you know, and China can share resources. Great. Japan, too. So much the better. But it's not going to happen in some kind of supranational way, since, of course, there is no supranationalism in Asia. I mean, there do seem to have been subtle differences between, say, Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, and so on. But one thing that does seem common is that they all got the message that early testing was pretty paramount here. And then some kind of quarantine system. And again, the sort of strictness of that seems to have varied from country to country, but they've they've all at least had some kind of system. But that testing, the infrastructure seems to have been there. Has this sort of told us that actually health systems in Asia and in these countries, because we're generalizing again, but does this tell us that these health systems are somewhat more resilient than maybe people might have thought before the virus struck? Well, you know, I mean, resilience is different from sort of having been robust all along, right? Or at least having built up a capacity. So do they have a strong capacity, a number of hospital beds per capita, a sort of stockpile of vaccines and treatments? Again, there's sort of testing infrastructure enough, you know, ample medical staff. Because developed Asia is also aging Asia, they almost by definition have made those investments already. I shouldn't say I shouldn't pretend that it's to be assumed because, of course, in America, it's also aging and they haven't you know, upgraded the infrastructure accordingly. But yes, one can already have taken for granted for quite some time now in you know, wealthy cities of China, in Japan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, you know, South Korea, Singapore, obviously, one can rely on the, on the healthcare infrastructure to do exactly what we have seen them do in the past uh, month or so. Question for both of you, really, and I'd like both of you to speak to this, but um, what's been the role of civil society here? Obviously, I'm in, I'm based in the UK now. There's a lot of exhortations coming from the government that uh, we need to do more to look after each other. It can't all just come from the government. In, as I said at the start, your excellent book on the Chinese religion, you know these communities in, in China. Obviously, there's some more tolerance towards religious groups in China these days, but there's also a lingering suspicion from the government. But what's been the role of those sorts of groups in helping the response to the coronavirus? And maybe, Parag, you can talk too about other countries in Asia and what you've seen there. Well, I think as most people probably 
know or can imagine, the government in China is skeptical about civil society. The, one of the lessons they learned about the downfall of communism in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union is that it was partially undermined by civil society groups, such as the Catholic Church in Poland and Solidarity Labor Movement there also. And so groups like that that try to operate outside of government control in, in a real civil society way, they are severely handicapped and basically cannot operate very well. So in terms of the virus uh, in, in January, there were several unregistered or underground churches that tried to send aid to Wuhan. And they did send aid, but then they were told by the police, stop this, you cannot do this anymore. And mm. uh, they were basically brought in for questioning, and that was the end of it. But groups that were registered with the government, they were able to send aid, and they they did organize to, mm. to some degree. It's not as robust as, say, a real, uh, say, Catholic relief services or, or these kinds of big international NGOs that that operate. But there was a significant amount of aid. I know from firsthand experience, a temple in, in Jiangsu province near Nanjing, they send a lot of aid to Hubei province. Um, and sometimes these churches or temples, mosques are encouraged, quote unquote, to make a donation. But what they often find is that the donations are far higher than the amount requested. So the temples mm. are sending millions of, of yuan worth or say hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of supplies and, and help. So I think that is something people want to be able to donate. They don't want to donate to the big gongos, the big government organized NGOs like Project Hope and these kinds of groups, because they think that this is just an arm of the government. But if it's their local temple or church or mosque that's running a fundraising drive, they're very willing to donate, especially if the local, say, priest uh, makes a personal appeal, which I've seen happen quite a lot. And people just open their wallets. And a lot of Chinese people, as you know, have money and they're willing to spend it on things like this. Paraga, you... Sure, I'd love to jump into this because I okay, think, you know, yes, dividing civil society into religious groups versus society more broadly, I think it was worthwhile because remember that in the case of South Korea, the sort of blame, quote unquote, is pinned on one of these religious, you know, or, or sort of cult groups that had strong ties to Wuhan, right? And so there, there was quite a bit of suspicion around their role. Not that not that one is demonizing the church, you know, sort of broadly or, or Christians in Korea, but clearly this particular sect, you know, is considered more part of the problem than the solution, obviously. And right now, the new cases in Singapore, there are about a dozen or so new cases a day, the vast majority of which are now imported. And the most recent batch of them have been Muslims who have gone to religious gatherings in Malaysia and come back. So that's why there's all across Asia and around the world, whether it is uh, churches on Sunday in the United States or mosques, uh, you know, from Saudi Arabia, as we've seen with Mecca being closed to uh, mosques across Southeast Asia, there's a strong pressure for religious institutions to just move towards virtual prayer, you know, or communion, yeah. whatever form that takes. Then I just want to make a point about sort of society more broadly and solidarity, because it's been critical in convincing people not to be hoarding items, whether it is a surgical mask or whether toilet paper and food, you know, that, that positive word of mouth that says, hey, let's all play our part. Let no one break rank. We're all in this together. You know, sharing is caring, <laughs> whatever the things, you know, our school children learn. That's been critical, right? Just the sort of top down diktat is not enough. You need a certain sense of social obligation. And I've seen that be fairly strong uh, here. And I do think that that's a critical factor in the kind of broader stability mindset. Uh, this is like also it. the problem in, uh, in Europe at the moment. You know, everyone flocks to um, to supermarket and um, buy lots of toilet papers. If I could just jump in for a second, I think that 
excellent point. I wanted to sort of, I was thinking of which countries have responded better. And I think the societies that have, and this is a broad generalization, I'm not sure if it entirely holds up, but where there is some more of a sense of social responsibility and where governments have more credibility, where they have more legitimacy, they Mm. seem to have done better. So in South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, people will accept what the government says as reasonable because they maybe have experienced that overall what the government does is reasonable. It seems to be that this has, for example, been a problem in Italy, where a lot of people initially did not respond to calls for self-quarantining because they thought, oh, this is the crazy government again. And there's right. this sort of ingrained mm-hmm. belief in Italy that you it's better to ignore the government or bypass whatever, or do the opposite of what they say sort of thing. And this has come back to bite them. So I think that if you're looking at it across regions, that may be one way to look at it as well. That's a, but, it's but, a really interesting point that it's not so much which system you have, whether it's a, you know, one party stays in a place like China or a democracy in a place like South Korea. It's, it's the credibility of the government and, and whether people believe what the government is telling them, yeah, or whatever, absolutely. whatever system they're from. Yeah. Can I have a follow up on that? Um, Ian, do you, do you see the relationship between the governor and the governed in China uh, changed after this you know, initial response? You know, obviously, you know, we talked about Li Wenliang, you know, Western commentators at the time said, you know, this has changed the relationship between the two forever. Never had the time we saw, you know, hashtag I want free speech popping up on China's Weibo, etc. Do you mm-hmm. think this has been a re- overreaction or do you think there's some truth to that, that people in China are now changing their expectation, their relationship with that government? I think this is a constant process uh, that's happening in China where people are constantly expecting more of the government and expecting things to be more reasonable and less arbitrary. But I don't think there's a sudden change. I think this is something people are always looking for in China. And after Mm. 1989, Tiananmen, this is like the government can't survive, the Communist Party will never survive, etc. I remember when I was covering the Falun Gong crackdown in 1999, 2000, 100 people plus were beaten to death in police custody, thousands of people sent off. And people are like, this can't survive, blah, blah, blah. And was okay. SARS, exactly the same thing, much more analogous situation, but the government responded. You know, I think a lot of people, it can also work in the opposite way where people think, you know, we really need a strong government. Because if you don't have a strong government, uh, you'll end up with chaos. And this is, of course, what Mm. the government's been saying for years and years. And if you do have monopoly or quasi-monopoly over the message, or at least you can influence it very strongly as they can with the propaganda apparatus, it's easy to make this point. Again, if you say, well, look, if we just had done, if we just let go laissez-faire, we'd be in an Italy-type situation where you have enormous numbers of people dying every day, but because of our firm action, resolute action, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's not going to change things too fundamentally, but I do think it's part of this overall process of pushing. And I think a lot of people know about Li Wenliang and other doctors. There was another doctor whose story came out last week, iPhone, and yep. uh, that's another one. That also got out on social media, and it wasn't all censored immediately. You know, the Li Wenliang story is also not censored. It's Parts of it are, but it depends how you tell it. Those articles are still out there. And so people do, and we'll use this, I think, to expect more from the government, but not necessarily you know, to reject it or, right. or something like that. So we talked about some of the positives of the response of some Asian governments. Um, can we talk a little bit about an, an area that might give people a little bit more pause, and that's the use of technology? Obviously, the use of technology in, in countries like China has been somewhat controversial in recent years because of the sheer amount of data that the government and other authorities appear to have about individuals. Now, in the case of a virus, 
a lot of that seems to have helped. Uh, China's been using technology to track the movements of people who might be infected with the virus, for example, but in a way that perhaps in Western countries might be seen as somewhat illiberal and somewhat as a, a sort of transgression of people's privacy. Could you both talk to that for a moment? How do you, how do you see that as having played out? Do you see that as being an advantage of sort of Asian systems or something that further down the line that we, we might want to be a bit more worried about? Parag, maybe you could talk to that first. Sure, if I may. I mean, it does link to the previous sort of topic we were addressing earlier around the credibility of the regime. You know, what I've seen over the last you know 15 years and kind of writing about the emerging technocratic model of certain Asian governments is that they having this degree of credibility and support from the public and this trust, this high level of trust. And in fact, around the world, those countries that based on surveys do have the highest degree of trust in government are uh, in Asia, and that's across democracies and some non-democracies. So I think that is an important factor. And so you can do this the sort of, you know, light touch way or the heavy handed way. Now, we know China is known for the kind of heavy handed way. But what they did in, in Singapore is mandated self-quarantining for people who were diagnosed. They had spot checks on them. And if they found that a person had violated the quarantine by going to the office when they're not supposed to or to a social gathering, then they were actually, I mean, in the case of one person, and this made the news internationally, he was simply kicked out of the country. They said, you know, you've lost your permanent residency status. You are no longer welcome in this country. I, to this day, and this was about three, four weeks ago, I can't find a single person in this country, expat or local citizen or non-citizen who disagrees with that decision right? Mm. A universal sense of support for the government to just swiftly toss this guy out of the country, right? Because, and they would have agreed no matter who it was, because again, it's a collective goods, a collective action issue. So if the country has, if the regime has some degree of trust, then it can use this technology in a way that people perceive is necessary for their own protection and welfare. Ian, what what are your thoughts on the way that the Chinese government has, has been able to use technology to counter the virus? Yeah, it's been quite effective and I think also quite widely accepted. When you, a friend of mine, for example, uh, lives in Nanjing and he went into Shanghai to do business. When he arrived uh, across the border in, from Jiangsu province into Shanghai, he had to install uh, some app on his phone that would record when he entered and exited Shanghai. And they ma- made a note of this. And then they, the next time he went back to Shanghai, uh, essentially on business, they said, OK, you came here three days earlier and you stayed for mm. eight and a half hours and fine. And then, you know, so on and so forth. It got easier and easier because he was doing what he said he would do, just go in for the day and leave, etc. But they really... But nobody seems to really care about things like that. Now, obviously, there is some concern in China um, about how data is used, privacy, those kinds of issues. But, you know, my sense overall, and maybe I'm a little apocalyptic about this, but as the world probably faces greater and greater crises with the environment and fires and rising water levels, there's going to be a call for stronger state action to solve these problems. And this is going to make it much easier to accept these kinds of solutions um, over the coming decades. There'll be a sort of quid pro quo that if we expect the state to solve these problems, the state is going to expect more of our data and more of expect to know more about our lives. And that has to be the sort of the settlement, as it were, between state and people. Yes, I think it's almost going to be impossible to be in the future off grid. It'll just be harder and harder to do that. 
again, you know, by, by collecting data, there's also the government has opportunity to intermittently when necessary, demonstrate that it can use it to positive effect. So here's a simple example, you know, Ian rightly mentioned the environmental uh, sort of necessities that will emerge. Well, just think about early warning systems, right? Governments around Asia, uh, Indonesia, Philippines, certainly China have before probably WeChat been able to send en masse text messages to warn people of incoming typhoons and so forth. And that's been considered obviously very pragmatic, obvious, simple, necessary, and positive usage of, you know, having people's data. Mm. Can we turn to the economic fallout here? Parag, you've written a lot about Asia's future. In fact, it's present really as the main driver of the world economy, obviously the global economy in a huge state of flux at the moment. But where do you see the fallout from this economically? Do you see this sort of trend towards decoupling that we've seen over the last couple of years, obviously with the, the trade war between the US and China? Is this just going to exacerbate that as supply chains fall apart? Or is there a more optimistic view of the way this impacts on the broader economy? Well, it's interesting how you uh, you phrase it sort of, you know, to be optimistic depends on what direction you think things should go. Um, You know, for some people, decoupling would be a very positive outcome. So, for example, right now in the United States, there are calls to massively nearshore production as a result of this to further automate things. Even in Asia, obviously, we can imagine that in a country like South Korea, a company like Hyundai is not going to want to have its own manufacturing production, whether it's in China for automobile parts or in, in South Korea itself depend on human labor. So Mm. automation, accelerated automation is going to be one sure consequence to emerge uh, from this. But we wouldn't want to claim that automation is happening because of the virus, right? We have to be very more accurate in the sequencing. So for example, supply chain shifts out of China have been happening for 15 years on the back of just low, you know, rising wages in China, lower wages in Southeast Asia, Southeast Asian markets growing, trade integration, then those countries rolling out incentives, then came the trade war and now the virus. So these things are all additive or cumulative. Some have said this will be the first global recession that emerged from China. That's a bit disingenuous because obviously analysts of of the global economy point out that we never really fully recovered from the last financial crisis. Um, And uh, that obviously is not an event that we necessarily blame, you know, on China uh, per se, unless you want to say that they're responsible for uh, holding U.S. interest rates down and that caused the mortgage crisis. But that's a bit uh, convoluted. Again, if the crisis itself is proof that we really don't live in separate worlds, right? I mean, if, if we did not have globalization, this would not have spread so far. I hope that this is just a reminder to people who think that deglobalization is something that either A, has already happened, or B, can be turned off like a switch. I direct you to the pharmaceutical supply chain, right? And the industrial supply right. chain. Most people have yet to even, most companies have yet to even make an accurate mapping of their own supply chain, let alone simply disentangle it, right? And, mm. you know, I've gone to great lengths, you know, to document this intensity with which global supply chains have become so so integrated worldwide. Now, there are areas where it would be a very wise thing. It would be very good for the planet to not have uh, certain commodities, you know, travel all the way across the world when there's no reason for that to happen and have more local production, either for the sake of environmental sanity and, and preservation or for, for matters uh, or reasons of national defense and having a strong industrial base. So some things should be nearshored, no doubt, no doubt about it, but a lot of things won't. Right. Um, 
geoeconomy could also be geopolitical, right? So do you think this crisis has changed the sort of alignment of geopolitics in Asia? Especially, you know, I'm thinking about the role of the United States playing in this part of the world. We haven't seen sort of, you know, indications of that yet. It may be more at the moment, given the sentiment and the suspicion mm-hmm. of China and the way in which it let this kind of, you know, spread without warning. And we have 2020 hindsight, right? But obviously, this adds a little bit of fuel to the anti-Chinese fire that has been brewing in the region over the last few years because of overextension of slight aggressive military activity, Belt and Road, death trap diplomacy, and now this virus. So you've had, obviously, a bit of a backlash brewing for some time. That doesn't necessarily open the door to the United States at all. You know, I know we don't want to veer too far into this discussion of sort of, you know, geopolitical theory, but the choice for Asia is not Chinese leadership or American leadership. It's neither. Right. You know, Asia has for most of its history been multipolar. This is just going to accelerate the process of other tower centers in Asia asserting themselves. So to the extent that there is a geopolitical consequence to this, it's simply going to, again, like with supply chains, it's going to simply distribute and diffuse authority a bit more, which is, again, in my mind, a good thing. Ian, do you worry yeah. that this is going to exacerbate tensions between the US and, and China? I mean, we've seen some comments flying backwards and forwards from both sides kind of blaming each other or criticizing the response of, of mm. both. Do you think it's going to play to that or, or can we get through this? Well, I think, yeah. So initially, people in, in the US who are calling it provocatively the Wuhan virus because right. they want to show that it really came from China. And then you had people in China who already a few weeks ago were saying, well, it couldn't possibly have originated in China. It might have first appeared in China, but maybe started at Fort Detrick uh, in, in the United States. And, and this is kind of funny because I remember in the in the late 1980s when I was getting started in journalism, I interviewed a couple in East Germany who had this published books on the fact that everything from HIV onward had all been had all started at Fort Detrick in the United States because this is sort of this weapons center. So there is this idea that you can blame things on covert U.S. operations and so on and so forth. But mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if that if that will matter too much. I think probably what will matter a little bit more is just that this is another example of the U.S. absenting itself from uh, a, a, an opportunity to show some leadership. It's kind of striking to me that many countries in the world have centers for disease control. They're all called CDC, named out, is so modeled yeah. on the center in Atlanta in, in the United States. So this was considered a forerunner uh, agency. And yet, if you look at the U.S. response, despite having this much vaunted CDC, it's been just terrible. And you have the president uh, pushing conspiracy theories. And so I think in Europe as well, people are like, well, we can't rely on the United States to provide any sane guidance. There's a way behind the curve. And I think it's the same in in China, where people uh, forget government propagandists. I just think many people will look and say, well, the United States isn't really doing anything yet again in this in yet another crisis. And so it just... It's another it's more erosion of U.S. soft power. Let me just add an example there. We've come uh, a long way from, let's say, the Indonesian tsunami of 2004, right, at the time. And also there have been numerous natural disasters, typhoons and so forth, damage that countries like the Philippines have suffered. And over the last, you know, or let's say going back uh, five to 10 years, the U.S. was seen as providing an enormous amount of support. Navy um, uh, destroyers retrofitted as uh, hospitals and providing offshore medical services and care, huge amounts of aid to those countries. And now, of course, there's nothing of the 
sort, right, in terms of that, that assistance. And, and by the way, so China was seeing as having doing nothing, right, in terms of uh, aid and assistance to countries in Asia when they face damage from natural disasters. So definitely it's a big turnaround. So if countries can, quote unquote, forgive China for having, quote unquote, caused, you know, and covered up the virus, but then see how their regimes collectively, despite that, have done a better job than Western countries, it obviously does add to the case that they will have to always find ways to manage affairs on their own, you know, moving forward, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. I want to return to um, to where we started to gauge the sort of a sentiment in that part of the world. Andrew and I are based in London, in, in Europe, and there's a sense that the worst has yet to come. And in China, we have seen reports that uh, this crisis might have already finished. Do you have the sense in different parts of Asia as well, Parrot? You are based in Singapore. Is there a sense of optimism on the rise? Uh, just mildly, you know. So, for example, I'm getting a bunch of emails already about events that were canceled in Singapore and Hong Kong and Tokyo, and they're saying, you know, here are the dates we're looking at for rescheduling. So that obviously is something. The fact that uh, you know, I think probably no one in the world missed the news item that every Apple store on Earth is closed except for the in uh, China, uh, sort of, you know, irony of ironies in some, some, some level. Uh, so, you know, maybe just cautiously, because remember, paranoia is the genuine common denominator of regime forms in Asia, you know, and, uh, and that's, uh, and then I think that paranoia, it's, it's a pad- paranoia leads to vigilance and vigilance is, you know, maybe why some of us are alive right now, quite frankly, those of us who live here uh, in, in the region. So I'm happy to accept that. Uh, and so, yes, but, but broadly speaking, based on the conversations I'm having with people in other countries and here, yes, I mean, mild optimism, but remember the government is saying this is going to take a year we still have these daily, you know, imported cases uh, as right. we open up, you know, what goes around is going to come around and so forth. So it's new normal. We haven't fully discovered it yet. But I think, you know, for those of us who are just there are a lot of companies right now that are in day one of work from home. Right. The banks, the tech companies just think in Singapore alone, tens of thousands of people who work for Facebook and Google and the investment banks, they're all at home today, Monday, as we speak uh, for the first day of probably a month. After a month, they're going to be pretty frustrated you know, if they if they can't just go back to the office and with all things being normal. And let's face it, you know, nothing is going to go as perfectly as we would like from here on forward. Right. And Ian, the lesson for you would be, as you wrote in the Times the other day, that really Europe and America probably should have looked a bit harder at the experience of Asia and were really extraordinarily slow to sort of respond to what had happened in Asia. Yes, I think so. I, I think one of the interesting points here that the government has been making in, in the UK is that you, you can implement these policies, but you have a window during which you can do it. You can't do this indefinitely. I mean, maybe in China you can do it for two months, but it'll mm. be harder to do that in other societies. So you have to find the right time to do it. And I think this is part of the reason why governments here have been maybe a little less eager to jump into the into lockdown mode, because they don't know how long it's going to last. And right. in China, they're still, it's still quite strict. They have opened up a few things, but most things are still closed. Restaurants still have very tight rules and regulations on how many people can sit in a restaurant and how close you can be to each other. And so a lot of life is, has changed dramatically and will probably stay like that for months to come. I, I think when we when this is all over, it will be interesting to see maybe we have a better sense then of who's done it right and who's done it wrong. But I think at least in China's response, you can say that they may have been too brutal. They may have been too heavy handed. 
but at least they were following some kind of tried battle plan of locking things down, implementing testing, and so on and so forth. Other countries, such as the UK, which is trying a much more laissez-faire attitude, is almost like a giant social experimentation yes. experiment. And yeah. it'll be interesting to see how these things pan out, and we'll have maybe a better idea in the future of how to react. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you both of you so much for guiding us through what we know to date, uh, at least. A uh, fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you to Vincent, obviously. Thank you to Rebecca Bailey, our producer. And of course, Alex Lestrange, who wrote the music for Asia Matters. Stay well out there. I hope you enjoyed this episode, if, if enjoyment is the right word. You can contact us at asiamatterspod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at asiamatterspod. And I hope you'll listen again next time. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much.